Well, uh, we all love a story with a happy ending. We, we long for happy endings. We, we are engrossed by these stories. We're, we're captivated by them. And I think, maybe it's just me, but, but sometimes we feel cheated when we don't get our happy ending of our stories, doesn't it? There's a fascinating work, uh, scholarly work, put out by a guy named Christopher Booker called The Seven Basic Plots. And what he did was over the course of about 34 years, he analyzed the stories that we as humanity have told ourselves for, for generations and generations throughout cultures, and, and he compiled them and, and, and studied them, and he found that they, they all really boiled down to, as you may have guessed, seven basic plots. And of those seven basic kinds of stories, there's only one that has a negative outcome, the tragedy. Think of Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth. All other six plots, basic plots, that, that you can drop almost every story we've ever told ourselves into end up with a positive outcome. Think of, of the story like The Voyage and Return, like, like Homer's Odyssey or The Lion King. Think of The Quest, like The Lord of the Rings. Think of The Rebirth, a story like Beauty and the Beast or A Christmas Carol. Now, maybe you knew this already, but, but some of our most famous movies that have come out in the last little while had their endings completely changed once they went to their initial screening audiences. For example, Pretty Woman. Maybe you remember this little movie that came out uh, you know, a couple years ago that had Julia Roberts and Richard Gere in it. Originally, in, instead of the happy ending that we got in the final product, uh, Julia Roberts' character actually ended up back working on the streets and even, as one article I found suggested, uh, died of a drug overdose. Naturally, that ending didn't test so well, and so they rewrote and reshot it. Another example, uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I won't tell you how it ends, because uh, I will say it ends happily, though, but originally, uh, the film was supposed to end like the book does. And if you're familiar with some of the characters, you know that, that, that at the end of the, the movie, uh, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, gets out of prison. Uh, but it was originally going to end with him just on a bus riding into the unknown. Obviously, the movie gave us a happier ending than that. And finally, one that probably most of us have heard of, at least if not watched incessantly, Frozen. In the first Frozen movie, Elsa was supposed to be and finish and remain as the villain of the story. We didn't get that happy ending. And now I'm sure everyone that's connected to Disney and the story that made them a billion dollars is glad they changed how that one wrapped up. What's the point of all this? And we all have within us this longing for a happy ending. Somewhere deep within our hearts, we want to experience the, we want to experience the supernatural. We want to experience uh, escape from death, to, to know that there's a love that we can never lose, uh, that we would not age, but we'd live long enough to see all our dreams come true. There's a longing within us to, to maybe fly, thinking of Peter Pan, and to triumph over evil. And even though we know that the, the movies we watch, the fairy tales we've read, the, the fables we've had read to us, we know that in our hearts that they're stories, these things, uh, they, 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 we long for them to be true. We long for them to, to just continue to, to scratch that sort of deep itch within our soul that says this, there must be something more than what we can see. I love how Tim Keller puts it, and as we've been working through this series, we've leaned on his book, Hidden Christmas, quite a bit. He says this, we hear these stories and they stir us. 
because deep inside our hearts, uh, our hearts believe, or at least they want to believe, that these things are true. Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. Our hearts sense that even though the stories themselves aren't true, the underlying realities behind these stories somehow are true or they ought to be. Well, how do so many of these stories that that draw our hearts into them start? Once upon a time. Or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And it's into this into this heart's desire that the Christmas story comes. And at first glance, it might just seem like another myth, another legend that's been passed down for generation after generation to to, to help warm our hearts in these cold winter days. And so this morning, we want to look at the beginning of the, the Gospel of Matthew, and specifically at some of the mothers of Jesus. Now, Matthew's Gospel is interesting because it doesn't start with the Christmas story. It doesn't start with the shepherds, the stable, the star. Instead, Matthew starts with a list of names. Maybe you're familiar with this text, but let me just read a few verses from it for us. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Verse 3. We drop down and we see that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, and their mother was Tamar. Skip down to verse 5. We see Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, excuse me. Verse 6, David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Then all the way down to verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I've really just kind of cherry-picked a couple of verses through those first 17, but I hope that some of those names stand up to you because we will be coming back to them. Here's the thing about generations, though. Sometimes they seem, let's say, cumbersome. In my own reading plan lately, I've been in Chronicles in the Old Testament, and the first nine chapters of First Chronicles are largely genealogies, and it is hard work sometimes to not just kind of let your eyes glaze and wander and head for the next chapter. But these lists are important. And so this list, this one that, that Matthew opens his gospel with, is really important. And so what do we learn from these words? Well, again, uh, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see two things that that Matthew doesn't explicitly say, but that are sort of inherent in him starting with a genealogy. And then we're going to see a few things that he does actually say. So first is this. By starting with a genealogy, Matthew is telling us that the gospel is good news, not good advice. And see, like we talked about last week, what Matthew has done here by starting with the genealogy is he's rooting everything that's about to come in his gospel in history. He doesn't start with once upon a time. He's saying that what's about to follow isn't a tale. It isn't a myth. This isn't legend. Jesus isn't a metaphor. Jesus isn't just some hero that we hope for and we long for. This is real and this stuff really happened. Now, why is this important? Well, the difference between news and advice is significant because advice is just a suggestion. It's it's giving somebody options. 
When someone who, who knows me or my family comes down to the Bow Valley for the weekend, they say, hey, where should we eat? Well, I could list off a number of great answers, any of which would be good, and that person may even decide to ignore everything I say to them. But they're just taking advice. They're asking for advice. But the gospel isn't good advice, it's good news. Well, what is, what is news then? The news is a report of something that's already happened. When we read or, or watch the news, we are informed of things that are happened, and then, and this is the crucial difference between news and advice, we are then forced to respond to it. You see the difference there? Advice says, here's some information, it's up to you how to act. News says, someone else has already acted, and so you need to respond to that in some way, shape, or form. Now, of course, when it comes to news, ignoring it is responding to it in one way. And so what we have here is the Bible telling us about something that actually happened. This isn't fable or fairy tale. There's no moral of the story when we get to the end. The, the characters that we read about in the Bible, other than Jesus, aren't primarily being held up as examples for us to pattern our lives after. See, the Gospels, and Matthew is one of the four that we have, the Gospels aren't telling us what you need to do, primarily. They are telling us what God has already done for us. See, the birth of Jesus, the, the birth of the Son of God is gospel. It's good news. It's an announcement. It's saying you cannot and, and will not be able to save yourself. God has come to save you. Now, other religions, other worldviews, and even some churches mistakenly treat the gospel as just advice, basically saying that, that salvation, uh, whatever that may look like in other religions, is something that you have to earn, something you have to struggle for, something that, that you have to perform to some standard in order to achieve. So many of the founders of other religions basically say to their followers, I'm here to show you the way. Do this. They're just giving advice. But Jesus came, and he founded Christianity on its Jewish roots and says, you can't do enough. You can't work and climb your way up to me, and so I came to you. Again, of course, Christmas is just the beginning, and Christmas always points us to Easter. And Jesus came into the world so that he could go to the cross and willingly give up his life to save the world. And we're going to celebrate that with communion a little bit later. See, that's, that's news. That's not advice. And it's not just news, that's really good news. And so Christianity then isn't primarily about making yourself better. It's not a place you come to, to uphold a few pillars and have five rules for a better life. Now, of course, as you respond to that news, it has massive implications on your life. The way that we act changes incredibly when we realize what Jesus has done for us. But first and foremost, the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity is that you need to be rescued and Jesus came to do it for you. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The second thing we can glean from this genealogy, even though Matthew doesn't kind of come out and explicitly say it, is this, that the gospel itself will change how we read other stories. Now, we started this morning talking about how we, how we all hope for and, and long for the happy ending at the end of our story, so we're not going to go back and rehash that, but we, we do long for, for stories of love, for, for heroes to win and evil to lose. 
And then Christmas story steps in and we, we read about how someone from a different world breaks into our world and he has miraculous power. He can calm the storms. He can heal people. He can raise the dead. And then we read about how his enemies turn on him and he's put to death. And yet when it seems like all hope is lost, he rises from the dead and saves everyone. And we might read that and think another epic tale, another great fable. We just have another story to point us that that kind of soothes a little bit of those underlying hopes and dreams that we have. But again, Matthew doesn't start with, once upon a time there was a young woman named Mary. He's rooting this good news into history. This is the story he's saying that, that all those other stories point us towards. Keller helpfully says that Jesus has come from that eternal supernatural world that we sense is there, that our hearts know is there, even though our heads may say it's not. At Christmas, Jesus punched a hole between the ideal and the real, the eternal and the temporal, and he came into our world. That means if Matthew is right, then there is an evil sorcerer in this world, and we are under an enchantment, and there is a noble prince who has broken the enchantment, and there is a love from which we will never be parted. All the stories are coming true in Jesus. This is is one of the the realizations that actually helped C.S. Lewis come to faith some time ago. Uh, Maybe you know the story, but he and and J.R.R. Tolkien and a couple other professors frequently met together at the Eagle and Child pub, and they discussed all sorts of ideas of things they were studying about, things they were, they were writing about. And one night, Lewis recalls that after dinner, he and Tolkien kept talking about Christianity until the early hours of the morning, three, four o'clock, he says. But Lewis struggled to come to an understanding of, of Christianity and just all the symbolism it had. He was an English major, English professor, so he, he saw these symbols elsewhere in literature as well. And he was enamored by all these pagan myths. And he was moved at the ideas of sacrifice and and resurrection that that all these other myths had. But for some reason, when it came to the Gospels, it it was different. He just couldn't grasp those. Yet on this one night, Tolkien was talking to him about this, and he was pointing him towards actually what we're talking about this morning, that that the myths aren't lies. They're, They're foreshadowings. They're hints of the real thing. And this changed everything for Lewis. A couple of days later, after this conversation with Tolkien, he wrote a letter to his good friend when he said, and, he, and he wrote this to him. He said, what, what Dyson and Tolkien showed me that night was this, that, I, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. Again, if, if I met the idea of a God sacrificing himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, the idea of a dying and reviving God in other places moved me. He says, provided I met it anywhere except the Gospels, which is a fascinating admission. He says, the reason that the pagan stories I was prepared to feel the myth was was, was as profound as it was, suggested that the meanings were beyond my grasp, even though I couldn't say what it all meant. Then he came to this conclusion. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with the tremendous difference that it actually happened. These stories we've been telling ourselves for for centuries and centuries and millennia point to this one. See, Christmas really happened. 
We as humans continue to, as Isaiah wrote hundreds of years ago, fumble in the darkness. And we do so, and we, we, talk, we, we do so as we talked about last week with a kind of amnesia or, or ignorance even. But the stories that capture our imagination, they aren't just entertainment. They aren't just escapism. They're actually reminding us and, and pointing us towards the truth. So the gospel story changes how we read other stories. So we've talked about the significance of the genealogy by what it doesn't come right out and say, but let's look and see what's in there and see what it actually does say for us as well. And the first is this. The gospel turns the world's values upside down. Now we need to remember that, that first century Jewish culture was in a lot of ways really different from 21st century Canadian culture. Today, we, we live in such an individualistic culture. It's all about me, it's all about self, and, and we all are trying to kind of promote ourselves. And, and so if we are looking for, say, a job, if we're looking to, to get into college or university, what's one of the things that's requested of us? A resume or a CV or something like that that lists all of our skills, all of our talents, all of our experience, all of our schooling, all of our training, all these things. We, we build ourselves up as much as we can on a sheet of paper and hand it up. But in the first century, the, the culture there was way more family-oriented, way more communal. This building up of yourself, just it wouldn't fly. It's not what they did. And so what looks to us in Matthew chapter 1 as a genealogy, and, and it is, it also doubled as a resume. The genealogy would say to the world, this is who I am. This is where I've come from. And we know that in those days, people fudged their resumes, their genealogies, just like we do today. There's evidence that Herod the Great cut out a bunch of names from his public genealogy because he didn't want anyone to know he was associated with those kinds of people. But that's not what we find in these verses in Matthew. The, the list I read, uh, the, the bits of the list I read this morning, was not tidied up at all. And so let me point out a few things here. First, there were five women listed. These are the five mothers of Jesus alluded to in the title of this morning's message. Now again, that day was different than ours, and in those days in that culture, women weren't put on these lists, let alone five of them. So we can call them gender outsiders in that culture because they were. But here they are in the list. The second thing, look at the names that, that we listed, those five names that I highlighted earlier. Most of them, three out of the five, were Gentiles. They're not even Jewish. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. To the ancient Jews, these women, these women were from unclean nations. They were Canaanites. Ruth was from Moab. They weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed in the tabernacle. So not only are they gender outsiders in that day, but they are racial outsiders. But here they are in Jesus' resume. And if we dig even deeper into who these mothers were, we see that, that Matthew, and, and remember, Matthew writes his gospel specifically to a Jewish audience. Matthew's bringing up some of the darkest, nastiest, most immoral stories found in the Bible and in Jewish history. We read about Tamar, the mother of Perez and Zerah. If you go back, you can remember that, that Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into, into sleeping with her to get her pregnant. It's a long story. Judah had treated her unjustly. But again, this, this is incest, and it is forbidden. It's against God's law everywhere in the Bible. But here it is. 
And Matthew doesn't just list her. Matthew lists Judah, Tamar, Perez, and Zerah. Even though Jesus came through the line of Perez, he lists both him and Zerah to remind us of this entire dysfunctional family. Jesus came from that family. Rahab was not only a Canaanite, but she was a prostitute as well. In verse 6, we get down and we see King David's name show up. And maybe we finally think, okay, finally, we've got some good news on this list. But look what Matthew writes. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, we know the name of Uriah's wife. We know her name was Bathsheba. And this is no slight against her at all by actually leaving her name out and calling her Uriah's wife. But Matthew is deliberately naming Uriah. Why does he do that? Well, again, remember, before David was king, he was, he was running, his, from his life, running for his life from Saul at the time. He had a, a group of mighty men with him that put their lives on the line to protect him and guard him. And we read in 2 Samuel 23 that one of these men was Uriah. This was a man that David owed his life to. And yet now, we read that that there was a time when, when the, the armies went to war and the kings were supposed to go to war with their armies, but David stayed behind. He neglected his duty as king, sent his army out, and then he saw Bathsheba. He took her, he slept with her, got her pregnant, and then he arranged for Uriah to be killed in battle so that he could hide what he'd done and ultimately marry her. Matthew isn't slighting Bathsheba. He's reminding us of what happened to Uriah. Jesus came from this dysfunctional family. So Tim Keller sums this up this way. He says, Here then you have moral outsiders, adulterers and adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. Indeed, we're reminded that even the prominent male ancestors, Judah and David, were moral failures. You also have cultural outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, the law of Moses excluded these people from the presence of God, yet they're all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus. What does this mean for us? It means that everyone can be brought into Jesus' family. Anyone who acknowledges his or her brokenness and sin, repents and turns to Jesus, will be welcomed in. Regardless of who you are, what you've done, where you've been, Jesus invites you in. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 1, Isaiah 1, Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. Today, our culture tends to teach us to look down on others, too. To, to make yourself look better at the expense of others to boast in your individual achievements and have others just look at how great you are. But Jesus' family is radically different. In Jesus' family, the prostitute and the king, the male and the female, the the Jew and the Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals. Equally sinful, equally lost, equally needing a savior, and equally accepted and loved and welcomed into the family. See, God God isn't ashamed of us. 
as the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2, he says, He who sanctifies those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he, God, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. See, the gospel turns the world's values upside down. The next thing Jesus says in this genealogy that we can see here is that God may take his time, but he will keep his word. Look again at this genealogy. Where does it start? Jesus the son of Abraham. The the promise of Jesus coming goes back thousands of years to Genesis chapter 12, and even further than that, back to Genesis chapter 3, where where God promised that a son would come to to crush the head of Satan. And between Genesis and Jesus were were thousands of years, and yet Mary sang in in her song in Luke chapter 1 that that he, the Lord, has, has remembered to be merciful to Abraham just as he promised our ancestors. The promise of Jesus was a long time coming. And the people uh, maybe even often thought that God had just forgot about them. Before this moment, before Advent happened, there had been 400 years since they had heard from a prophet. So the lesson for us is that we can't judge God by our calendar. We may feel forgotten. It it may seem like God's not paying attention or, or God's too slow but he never forgets his promises. Peter writes, the Lord is not fulfill, slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a, a massive theme of Advent of the Nativity and also of the Bible. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament, his story at the end of Genesis. It took years and years and years to see what God was up to. He may have seemed like he'd been forgotten, but eventually in Genesis 50, he could say to his brothers, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. Consider Jesus a little bit later in Mark chapter 5. He had been called to come help heal a sick girl, and he, he was seemingly distracted on the way and went to help someone else, and this little girl died. It seems like hope was lost, but then he reached her and he raised her from the dead. I love how Tim Keller says, God's grace virtually never operates in our time frame, on a schedule that that we consider reasonable. He doesn't follow our agendas or our schedules. When Jesus spoke to this despairing father, Jairus, whose daughter had just died, he said, believe. He was saying, listen, if you want to impose your time frame on me, you will never feel loved by me, and it will be your fault because I do love you, and I will fulfill my promises. See, God might not operate in our time, but he keeps his promises. And so let me challenge you as we come to the end of the year and come to a new year to to read through the Bible next year, looking for the promises that God made and God kept, but also looking for those promises that he makes and will keep uh, for those who believe in him. Finally, the last thing we want to say here is is that gospel is the ultimate rest. The gospel is the ultimate rest. Again, look at Matthew 1, verse 17. Matthew writes, So the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to Babylon were 14, and from Babylon to the Christ were 14. Now again, this section I need to mention that I'm helped by Keller noting these dates here. But numbers in Scripture are, are very often very significant. And so Matthew is detailing here for us three 14s. Did you notice that? Abraham to David, David to Babylon, Babylon to Christ. 
And if we do a little division, we see they're not just three 14s, but also six sevens. That means that Jesus came at the start of that seventh seven. So why is this important? Well, in the Bible, seven is incredibly significant. Because as we read in Genesis, God rested from his creating work on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. This one in seven was, was the day of rest. But it goes farther than that. In the law of Moses, every seventh year, the farmers were not to work the land and instead let it rest, let it be restored, let it regain nutrients so it could be farmed again. That seventh year represented rest in the land. And then a bit later, in Leviticus 25, we're told that the last year of the seventh seven-year period, so year 49, was to be a, a jubilee. And in that year, not only was there to be rest, but, but all the slaves, all the workers were to be set free. All the debts were to be forgiven, and there was to be rest in the land. And so that seventh seven, that, that jubilee was to be a hint or a foreshadowing of the final rest that we'll know when God renews the earth. And so what Matthew is saying by highlighting this for us, remember, his primary audience is deeply Jewish. They would have caught this. He's saying that the ultimate rest comes through Jesus. Keller, again, helpfully says, do you understand that Jesus Christ was not born once upon a time, but he really broke into time and space? That he has accomplished your salvation so that the prostitute and the king sit together at the table? If you believe that, even now you can begin to taste that rest. How does faith do that? Well, one way is this. In Jesus, you stop having to prove yourself because you know it doesn't matter in the end whether you're a failure or a king. All you need is God's grace, and you can have it in spite of your failures. One of the ways faith carries us through this year is all the ways that we're been, we've been told to be anxious, to be fearful, to be nervous, to, to see the world crumbling around us is that we know that our rest doesn't come from our retirement accounts. It doesn't come from our anything of this world. It comes from Jesus. Christmas tells us that despite sometimes seemingly overwhelming evidence to the opposite, God is in control of history. And someday he will put everything right. Ultimate rest comes through Jesus. Jesus himself later invites us, and this will lead us into communion. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Sidle up with me. Let me walk with you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to walk through, again, what is maybe a familiar text. Maybe it's one we sort of uh, gloss over and skip through until we get to, get to the narrative, get to the story, get to Jesus. But thank you for all that comes out of these verses. Jesus, thank you that you have come to rescue us. That, that Christmas points to Easter and your ultimate victory on the cross. Thank you that you have come to bring rest. Thank you that you have come to, to carry our burdens. The things that would crush us don't crush you. 
Thank you that you invite all of us, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, no matter what our lives look like, we are welcomed at the table. We're invited to the table. Maybe this is the first time you've, you've heard this. Maybe this is the first time it's really resonated with you. And you, you, you want Jesus' rest. I would invite you to just pray with me in, in some simple words. Jesus, I need you. I want this rest that you've promised. Forgive me for the, the things I've done that have led me away from you, but draw me back to you. Help me, uh, help me carry my burdens. Again, I, I want that rest. Teach me as you promise, so that I can find rest in my soul. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.